The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. That's how we're going to do it. Getting ready for a trip to Nicaragua. Exciting stuff, folks. Very, very exciting. So that's how we're going to do it. Um, so hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. I'm going to give my opening remarks. And then a- as I'm doing that, I'll be writing your super chats down. I'll be writing your super chats down. And then I'll answer your super chat in the second half of the show. Um, that's how we do it. So if you have a super chat, just shoot it my way and I will write it down. I will write it down and away we go. So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, tweet this out. Uh, wherever videos are posted, uh, wherever things are. And you can tweet out the topic because for my opening remarks for this first live of today, we will be discussing the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is, it's Halloween time, right? This is Halloween, it's October. And because uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is a very, very important uh, work of art, I mean, I will say, I mean, it came out, the film came out in 1975, stage musical was produced in 1973, still wildly popular. Um, I will be giving a political analysis of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and I will be giving you my unique political analysis of it. Uh, So that's how I will do my opening remarks. So tweet this out, uh, bring the audience here. And then after that, I'll just answer your super chats and then we'll be done. And then I'll be live later tonight. I'll probably do around 11 p.m. tonight, maybe a little bit, maybe even 1130. There we go. All right. So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. And now let's jump into it. Folks, I think that Rocky Horror Picture Show, if you really get to the essence of what it is saying, is profoundly right wing, profoundly conservative and profoundly uh, profoundly what you might call traditionalist. Um, you know, oh, why is, pr- profoundly traditionalist. Now, you have to understand, now the, I, wanna get, I wanna get this right out of the bat as I say that, because a lot of people are hearing that and they're thinking, they're rolling their eyes and they're saying, Caleb, how can, how in the world, um, how in the world, VA governor election. How in the world can you think that Rocky Horror Picture Show is conservative? Well, first of all, I want to point out that I know that people who like it, people who liked it at the time that it was produced, people who like it over the years, are not liking it in a conservative way, right? The film was released in 1975. The stage play was released in London in 1973. And at that time, society was far, far less tolerant of LGBT folks, of trans folks, et cetera. And people went to see this musical and this film largely because it had gay sex in it, uh, because it had, you know, trans and, you know, cross-dressing folks in it. People saw that and people were going to it because of that. People liked it in a very liberal, open-minded way. I understand that. Um, there's actually an interesting tradition. I don't know if people have ever heard of this, but back back in the time before there was television, you know, it used to be there was a lot of live entertainment. There'd be carnivals that would travel from town to town. They had vaudeville theater. And if you look into U.S. history, one thing they used to have in, in the United States is they used to have what were called sex shows. 
And what they were was that, you know, this was, you know, we used to have a lot stricter laws around pornography and, and strip dancing and stuff like that. They used to be very strict about that kind of thing. So there used to be one thing that people would do to make money is they would put on a sex show. And there would be a doctor, usually, uh, a doctor who would give a lecture on the danger of sexually transmitted diseases and the dangers of teen pregnancies uh, and, you know, uh, you know, the facts of life, etc. And he would put on this uh, this show and it would be all urging you not to have sex outside of marriage and to be a good, wholesome you know, person. But while he was giving this presentation, he would have several scantily clad, beautiful nurses assisting him in putting up slides. He'd have very racy pictures of genitals to show you things. And the whole thing was titillating his audience. And the audience was full of men who were there to be aroused. But he was up there giving a lecture about morality. And that was that was a thing that happened. And a lot of a, a lot of things in US society are like that. Um, and as much as we are now much more liberal and open as a society, we still have a big part of this. We've talked about Fox News. We'll have those scantily clad, uh, you know, beautiful, you know, beautiful anchors, uh, you know, you know, talking about how there's, you know, we need we need social restraint. And that this is a weird thing. It's part of the human mind. We want we want what we're being told not to have. Right. You know, we want we want to crave something that's forbidden. We want to be hungry and then eat. We want to be thirsty and then drink. Um, and that this is this is part of the way human desires work. They talk about forbidden fruit. When we're told something is bad, we want it more. And that this is part of the psychological game we human beings play. And that 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 that's a way you can kind of understand these things. People were going to see Rocky Horror Picture Show because they wanted to see drag queens. They wanted to see gay sex. They wanted to see something about sexual freedom and liberation. But at the essence of what the play is about, if you actually read what it's about, uh, what the play or the film is saying, it's quite conservative in its essence. And, you know, I, I first, you know, I first came across this work of art as a teenager um, I remember my parents didn't want me to watch the movie. So I remember I, I, I got on the internet and I read the screenplay. And so, you know, I, I devoured it first as a screenplay. And so because I was reading the words of it, not just watching people dancing on a screen, I, I, I guess I engaged with the content a little more. And over the years, of course, I've seen the movie, seen the play, et cetera. I've thought about it a lot, and now that it's Halloween time, I want to give you my overall political analysis. What is this work of art saying? And at the end of the day, I would say the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the Rocky Horror Show, the musical, is profoundly conservative. Um, and I will go over why that is. All right, so the film starts out. Um, for those of you who haven't seen the film, I will narrate what happens while pointing to the political message of what goes on. So the film starts out, there's this couple... Brad and Janet, uh, and they are nerdy, right? Uh, they are a nerdy couple, and they are at a wedding, and uh, as the wedding is ending, uh, Brad proposes to Janet, you know, says, will you marry me? She says, yes, and they're so excited that they're going to get married. And so they start driving through the countryside, uh, so excited about this marriage that's about to happen, um, and then their car breaks down in the middle of a thunderstorm. And their car breaks down in the middle of a thunderstorm. And so they're kind of trapped. And uh, their car breaks down in the middle of a thunderstorm. 
and they end up uh, going to a nearby castle uh, in order to find help. They get to the castle, and the castle, they find out, is headed up by a, a, a drag queen uh, by, by the name of Frank and Furter, right? an allusion to Dr. Frankenstein. So they get to this castle run by this drag queen, um, and um, they, you know, they see him singing and dancing, um, and they don't quite know what to make of this castle. There's a number of, of gender non-conforming guests who are doing bizarre dances, etc. So as soon as they get to this castle, um, they find out it's a very special night uh, because the, the drag queen who runs the castle uh, is going to uh, announce that he's created a human being. He's pulled a, a Dr. Frankenstein, he's created a human being. So the couple, they get to the, uh, they get to the castle, they're, they're looking for help or whatever, they're separated from each other. Then the drag queen proceeds to seduce both the man and the woman, um, and they both are seduced uh, separately. He seduces the man separately, and he seduces the woman separately. And they both find out about this and feel profoundly betrayed um, by this. Uh, you know, they both feel shocked that their, their partner would cheat on them and would, you know, etc. They both feel very betrayed by this. Uh, the, the Frank and Furter character uh, proceeds to, uh, from there, uh, from there, you know, they, 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 one of his former lovers uh, breaks out of a, 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 what is it, like an ice chest or a freezer where he's been keeping him. Um, and, uh, you know, he's been, he's basically put one of his former lovers, a, a motorcycle guy, into a freezer uh, that he's put into the, to a freezer. Well, the guy breaks out of the, of the freezer and, uh, and then uh, Dr. Frankenfurter murders him in front of everyone. Uh, with an ice pick, he murders him uh, and kills him. Uh, and uh, then they proceed to make this this person uh, from the dead. Uh, you know, they create a a, a new human being. Um, they create a new human being, um, and uh, the couple are having drama between the two of them. They they obviously can't get along. And at one point, uh, then the Dr. Frankenfurter character becomes angry uh, at the woman, at the Janet, uh, proceeds to start yelling at her, at which point uh, the, you know, the Dr. Frankenfurter, um, you know, freezes all of them. Uh, and, uh, you know, he makes them all into statues. He then breaks them out of being statues for some kind of bizarre floor show, uh, which is the climax of the of the piece. Uh, there's this big floor show, this big artistic performance, at the end of which the servants of, of Dr. Frankenfurter, of the drag queen, then rise up and, uh, and seize control, and it turns out they're aliens, and they go back to another planet. Um, and if you look at the whole thing, all throughout the piece, you find condemnations, condemnations of the main character. The main character, Dr. Frankenfurter, who's the hero of the whole thing, is clearly the villain. And he is associated with evil, and he's associated with living a sexually free lifestyle. Uh, and that is abundantly clear. And in fact, many people look at the film in particular and feel like the Dr. Frankenfurter character is probably intended to represent the Greek deity Dionysus, the cult of Dionysus. Um, uh, you know, the cult of Dionysus in ancient Greece, 
You had Dionysus, uh, which was the god of wine and pleasure. You know, they used to have orgies, big drunken sex parties to worship Dionysus. Um, and it's pretty clear that Dr. Frankenfurter is supposed to be Dionysus. And during the climax of his floor show, uh, he begins, you know, he, he, he sings to the audience. He says, give yourself over to absolute pleasure. Swim the warm waters of sins of the flesh, erotic nightmares beyond any measure, and sensual daydreams to treasure forever. Don't dream it, be it. He's basically urging the audience to live out their deepest sexual fantasies. Um, and as he says that, um, you know, it, this is supposed to be an evil person. He's a murderer. Uh, not only does he he kill someone else at one point, he, I think he's a cannibal at one point. You see him eating his former lover uh, who he's killed. Um, you know, and, and we're supposed to associate this hedonism with a cruel indifference to other people. Uh, with And that's how he comes across as a character, that he's obsessed with his own sexual pleasure to the point that he preys on other people, that he kills other people, he murders other people. Um, and... That comes across as, as you look at the piece. The, the main character, who is the symbol of sexual freedom, is also the symbol of cruelty and indifference to others and sadism uh, and violence. And the, the link between sex and violence, uh, the link between cruelty and indifference to others and pursuing one's own pleasure is, is made over and over again throughout the piece. Dr. Frankenfurter is supposed to be evil. And he's also supposed to be the symbol of sexual liberation. Uh, meanwhile, a big part of what Dr. Frankenfurter seems to be doing is he's trying to corrupt human beings, right? He's made his own human being at one point. He makes uh, he makes his own character, uh, right? The uh, you know uh, he makes this own his his own creature, right? That he makes a human being. Uh, simply for his own sexual pleasure. Um, he's, you know, he's trying to convince Brad and Janet, this normal couple, to become sexually liberatory like him. Um, and that he's trying to change human beings. He's from some other planet, but he's trying to change human beings. That is a, a recurring theme from the piece. At one point, uh, you know, during the, the climactic floor show, uh, the, the, you know, big, strong, sexy man that he's made in his laboratory, his monster or whatever, um, and, you know, he says something like he says, I'm just seven hours old, truly beautiful to behold, but somebody should be told my libido hasn't been controlled. The only thing I've come to trust is an orgasmic rush, rush of lust. He's created this human being out of nothing like Dr. Frankenstein or whatever. He's created him to be nothing but a sexually a creature that craves nothing but sexual pleasure. And so he does that, um, he also is trying to corrupt Brad and Janet against each other, trying to, to tear apart their relationship, trying to get both of them to live more sexually open lifestyles. Um, at one point, um, at one point, there's an allusion to LSD, um, you know, uh, during that floor show, uh, the Janet character says, um, you know, I, she says, you know, uh, what does it say? She, my, 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 my ways have been disbanded. My mind has been expanded. It's the gas that Frankie's landed. His lust is so sincere. That's a reference to drug use. That's a reference to drug use, accompanying drug use. Mind has been expanded. Expanding your mind, that was a euphemism for LSD at the time. And, um, you know, give yourself over to absolute pleasure. You know, all of this is, Frankenfurter is supposed to represent the cult of Dionysus. 
The cult of Dionysus that he represents is trying to corrupt average people. Average people, right? Brad and Janet are supposed to be this average normal couple. Uh, Eddie, or, or you know, uh, the uh, the monster he creates is just create just this thing he's creating. He's trying to remold human beings into being pleasure-centered creatures without any moral compass, like he is. He's a sociopath, he murders people, he preys on people, um, and he's trying to reinvent other people to be like him. But they reject him, right? They reject him. There's one moment where he's trying to sexually assault Janet. He's yelling at her for for being, um, you know, he's yelling at her for being... um, for being too too prudish, not being sexually liberal like him, and it seems like the entire the entire cast seems united against him. They all start condemning him, saying you're a hot dog, but you better not try to hurt her, you know. And it seems like everyone is kind of rejecting him as much as he's trying to reinvent people to be like him, to be sociopathic and to be pursuing only their own pleasure. Uh, it doesn't work. Uh, they're all rejecting him in unison. And that seems to be a theme of it. Um, so then, right, the floor show, the climax of it, after he gives his give yourself over to absolute pleasure, right, you left, right, um, after he does that, then it's his servants who rise up and uh, and remove him, right? You know, the, the riffraff character walks on, you know, Frankenfurter, it's all over. Your mission's a failure. Your lifestyle's too extreme. I'm your new commander. You are now my prisoner. I mean, it's, it's and, and that character riffraff, uh, who is the servant of this hedonistic drag queen, um, what is his name? His name is Riffraff. What is Riffraff? That's the slang of the British aristocracy for the, the poor, for the common folk, for the working class. It's the name of the character. And it's also worth noting that the author of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Richard O'Brien, in the movie and in the stage play, played the character of Riffraff. And Riffraff is this, you know, he's the one who ultimately ends it, right? The servant, uh, the servants rise up and, and overthrow the, the decadent, sociopathic, uh, you know, uh, uh, rich man, basically. Um, and, and so the servants rise up and overthrow the decadent, sociopathic, rich man. Um, that, is, that is how the, the piece ends, right? And so then, you know, the aliens go to another planet, the castle disappears. But the final words of the piece, the very final words of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the way the last line from the narrator, again, is really saying something. The last line of the Rocky Horror Picture Show is, goes like this. The, the narrator says, and crawling on the planet's face, some insects called the human race, lost in time and lost in space and meaning. So this is basically an expression of postmodernism. There is no truth. There is no meaning. Human beings are just kind of animals. There is no point to life. And the, the, you know, Brad and Janet are just kind of left there in this crater. The castle that they've gone to just zaps away into outer space or whatever. And they're left there and confused about what is true and what is not true. Right? You have to remember, so when, did, when, when was the time this was produced? This is 1973, right? During the film uh, version, they made a point of having Nixon's resignation in the film, like the audio recording of Richard Nixon's resignation from the presidency in the film. 
And it's supposed to be a symbol for the cultural confusion that followed the 1960s, uh, late 70s political upsurge. Um, and at the time, you know, allegories to the fall of Rome were very widespread. You know, Richard Nixon, who they have audio of him recording, you know, he, there's a famous recording you can probably find online of Richard Nixon, uh, who was very, very upset, um, was very, very upset about the fact that the TV program, All in the Family, had had a gay couple on it. Richard Nixon was furious about it. And if you listen to Richard Nixon, this audio recording, he says, oh my God, this is the breakdown of a civilization. Don't you know the last five emperors of Rome were a bunch of fags? Uh, you know, and he's he thinks that homosexuality, uh, you know, homosexuality destroyed the Roman Empire. And that this was a recurring theme with the right wing at the time, right? The 1970s, 1960s right wing was saying the hippies, um, the hippies, uh, you know, they're, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the hippies, they're all, uh, you know, they're, this is the, uh, a civilization in decline, cultural decadence, sex, drugs, and rock and roll is a sign that America is, is ending. We have to stop this or else it's going to tear apart our whole civilization. That's a theme. So, you know, that's a, that's a theme. And then so you have the cult of Dionysus, basically, trying to seduce this good, wholesome American couple and failing. Um, and then you have the workers, the servants of Dr. Frankenfurter, rising up and overthrowing him because his lifestyle is too extreme. Um, this is a profoundly right-wing piece. Um, and it's associating the, the, the most profoundly right-wing part about it is it's associating sexual liberation with, uh, with, with sociopathy and with indifference toward other people, with violence and with cruelty. That's one of the main, main points of the piece, right? You are, you are to associate sexual liberation with, uh, with raping other people, with murdering other people, with eating other people. Um, that's one thing. Uh, the second thing is that uh, you are also supposed to um, supposed to you know supposed to associate working class people with fighting for morality against the decadent rich. Right? That's definitely a socially conservative message. Um, in addition to that, um, it leaves you. It leaves the way the piece ends. It, it ultimately ends with this postmodern bemoaning of moral confusion. You know that all all truth has been stripped away. What is the truth? Um, and and that's kind of what it. It's bemoaning moral confusion. It's basically saying we were better off when we knew what right right and wrong were. Um, that's basically the message of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Is it is. It is portraying the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of the 1960s as having a negative effect of leading in a, in a dangerous place. Uh, and, you know, at one point, you know, there's a whole song about this, this Eddie character, this previous lover of Dr. Frankenfurter who's died. And uh, the whole piece is about how uh, this was a young man who, who got in with a bad crowd and turned into a bad bad person, right? And he got in, I mean, if you listen to it, it's just, you know, they're condemning him for being a biker. When Eddie said he didn't like his Teddy, you knew he was a no good kid, but then he threatened your life with a switchblade knife, you know, and it's just, it's the tragedy of, of a young, young man being corrupted. Um, uh, you know, at one point, um, uh, what is it? Uh, you know, I mean, there's something about the, you know, there's a, a, a section that is condemning I believe is condemning the, you know, the kind of the, the, the way a lot of drug addicts work. Um, what is it? 
right? Um, it was great when it all began. I was a regular Frankie fan, but it was over when he had the plan of, to start working on a muscle man. Now, the only thing that brings me hope is my love for a certain dope. I mean, this is uh, about how ultimately, yes, becoming a drug addict feels very fun and exciting, but pretty soon uh, you become an addict and you become dependent on it. I mean, it's 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 all arguing. The whole point of the piece is basically that, uh, that the lifestyle that, that the piece is kind of celebrating, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, partying, you know, the cult of Dionysus doesn't lead to happiness. That's the point. Uh, that's the point of the piece. It's profoundly socially conservative. It's Richard Nixon saying, oh my God, the last five emperors of Rome were gay. That's basically what the piece is saying. And it's kind of odd, but but it's kind of like one of those sex shows, right, that I talked about. All those men who used to go to the carnival sex shows throughout the United States, they weren't there to support good morals. They were there to get turned on, right? And um, it's interesting because uh, one thing I find kind of profound is, or kind of interesting, I guess, is that you know, Rocky Horror Picture Show, it was filmed at a, 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 a studio called Bray Studios in Britain. Bray Studios. It's where they filmed a lot of movies. That's also where they filmed the Hammer Horror films, right? The films with Christopher Lee uh, and Peter Cushing. You know, those 1960s horror, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein. They were all filmed at this studio called Bray Studios. Uh, it was, you know, they had a castle soundstage, basically. Um, what's interesting about that is that, um, that the, the critique that a lot of people had of those Hammer horror films is that many people watched those films, right? You know, The Curse of Frankenstein, The Horror of Dracula, uh, you know, Dracula's Risen from the Grave, Taste the Blood of Dracula. Many people have watched those films um, and they say, you know, okay, the films, they have a lot of sex in them. At the time, they were widely criticized for having so much sex in them. They have a lot of violence in them, a lot more gore than people were used to in movies. But they're still, quote unquote, moralizing, right? They're still trying to give you a, a lecture on right and wrong. They're trying to teach you morals, right? And that's a critique that a lot of modern horror fans have of those films, is right? That, that it's about good and evil. It's trying to get you to you know, to, to stand for good against evil. Often the main character in one of those films is somebody who is, is a good person but has done something bad um, and and then getting doing something bad leads to a bunch of bad consequences and then luckily they, they see the error of their ways and they're able to escape those bad consequences while learning kind of a moralizing lesson. It's a lot of those films. A lot of those films are like that. Um, and that people find them to be moralizing. But at the same time, people were going to see Christopher Lee as Dracula, uh, Peter Cushing as Frankenstein. They were going to see it not because they wanted a morality tale, uh, because they wanted to see the violence. They wanted to see the sex. And it's the same kind of thing with Rocky Horror Picture Show. Rocky Horror Picture Show, in essence, is giving you a morality lecture. It's saying that uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll uh, is going to lead you toward uh, toward destruction and moral confusion, and it's not a not a good way to be, and it's associated with evil. Uh, but at the same time, everyone was going to see Rocky Horror Picture Show because they wanted this the you know the gay sex, they wanted the drag queens, they wanted the rock music, they wanted they wanted to celebrate that. So it's a weird kind of thing, and that may have been what made it appeal, right? It's like it's this whole thing we want. You know, to really enjoy eating, you have to be hungry first, right? To really, uh, to really enjoy drinking, you have to be thirsty first. And it's this weird kind of Freudian game that our mind plays 
where we want to be told no. We want to pursue something and be told it's wrong at the same time. And that's what the film is doing. It's giving you a morality lecture while uh, while letting you see the rock and roll and the sex that you're there to see, right? It's condemning something while uh, while using it to appeal to you. It's a very bizarre psychological game. But at the end of the day, you know, I would maintain that the message of the film, if you look at what is being said in the film, right, the, the way Brad and Janet, right, uh, are, are being corrupted, but then, you know, the, the big climax of the moment is when, you know, Brad stands up for Janet, uh, you know, against Dr. Frankenfurter, even though their, their marriage is, or their relationship is ruined, you know, and everyone, you know, they all start condemning Dr. Frankenfurter, you know, you know, saying you're a hot dog, but you better not try to hurt her. That's like the whole the whole cast of the play is basically ganging up on Frankenfurter and saying you're you're an evil person, um, and that's like the climactic moment, um, right? And that's that's a condemnation of the character, right? Um, and he's a villain, right? And the other thing is that Doctor Frankenfurter is really the star of the whole thing. He's almost like a Macbeth, right? He's an antihero, right? He's he's an evil person who's the center of the whole thing. I mean, he is he is the main character if there ever was one. It's about him. It's about him, but he is supposed to be an evil person. And ultimately, you know, his evil destroys him. Um, and, uh, and, and that's kind of the message. It's like your evil will destroy you. And associating uh, sexual liberation with indifference to other people, with cruelty to other people, um, you know, with selfishness, with the, the, you know, this, the downward spiral of drug addiction, um, then arguing that average working class people are going to are going to rise up to crush the decadence of the rich um you know bemoaning the moral confusion you know i mean that that last line in the film crawling on the planet's face some insects called the human race lost in time lost in space and meaning and then the chorus says meaning and that's the end of the movie Right, it's it's very conservative. It is it is an extremely right wing, right wing piece. I mean, the fact that they did so much to convince you uh, that uh, that 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 you know, I mean, to to link the drag queen, um, you know, murderous psychopath, you know, protagonist of the piece to link him with. Um, you know, with the cult of Dionysus at a time there was widespread discussion about ancient Rome. The fact that they put Richard Nixon's resignation in the film uh, and the R Richard Nixon's supporters were constantly condemning the hippies and comparing the USA to the fall of Rome, the decline, empire in decline. I mean, this was, the more you look at the piece, the fact that the author played riffraff and played, you know, assigned himself to play the role of the socially conservative working class person, the riffraff rising up to stop the decadence of the rich, the more you look into it, this is a very conservative piece of writing. Um, it's a very, very conservative piece. Um, and that's that's my analysis of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, what do folks think? Am I wrong? Am I right? I mean, what do folks think? That's that's my analysis. Happy Halloween, by the way. I thought for Halloween I'd give you my analysis of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And that is my analysis. I read it as profoundly socially conservative. I see it as a, as a work of social conservatism. Jenny Lynn says I'm spot on. President Hazun says he's never thought, thought of it before. Marilyn says I'm dead wrong, right? Um, I, I'll admit I've never seen it, says someone else. Um, but there you go. 
There you go. Happy Halloween. Um, that was really interesting. Gave me a lot to think about. It says E. Okay, very good. I've never seen the movie, but enjoyed the talk. Oh, okay. Well, well, watch the movie yourself and tell me what you think because that's what I take from it. I'm just, I'm just being honest with you. I see it as a morality tale. I see it as, uh, I see it as an, uh, an attack on the rich for not being socially conservative enough. I see it as bemoaning moral and confusion. Um, you know, uh, Millennial Splaining, uh, who's got a great channel. You should check out Millennial Splaining's channel. Uh, um, uh, Bess uh, says, excellent point. Is the author self-hating gay? The author, uh, I believe, uh, describes himself as transgender now. I don't know much about the author, um, but he's definitely not a social conservative. Um, but the piece reads to me like social conservatism. But perhaps that was the art of it. Perhaps he was trying to write a Hammer horror film. Right? Perhaps he, he was ironically writing a morality tale that he didn't really believe in. I, I don't know if he, if, he, if he wrote it that way to be in the style of one of these horror movies that's giving you a morality lecture. Um, perhaps that's what it was. But if you look at it, it ends in a very kind of, kind of dark, sad way. That's, that's the way it ends, uh, bemoaning moral confusion, bemoaning postmodernism and the lack of a clear, coherent narrative, the decline of ideology. It ends with kind of extreme social conservatism. Um, there's many aspects of it you could dig into. Um, many aspects of it you could dig into. Uh, you know, there's a character in the film I didn't even mention before uh, who is uh, he's called Dr. Scott. And he's like a friend of Brad and Janet's who's supposed to be, he's supposed to be a scientist. Um, you know, and at one point uh, they allude to the fact that he's a Nazi, um, Dr. Scott, you know, and he says, don't you mean Dr. Von Scott or something like that? It's like he's supposed to be a Nazi, uh, basically. They, you know, Brad and Janet, you know, they have this Nazi, Nazi friend of theirs, Dr. Scott, who's in a wheelchair and he's supposed to be like a, a Nazi or something like that. Um, it's weird. Um, and, uh, you know, he's he's resisting. At one point he says, you know, what is it? Um, what do you say? He says, what is it? Um, I must be strong and try to hang on before this decadence saps our wills, right? You know, I mean, it's it's basically it, it's it's bizarre, right? So like, so if Brad and Janet are the heroes and Frankenfurter is evil and their friend is a Nazi in a wheelchair, like it's really really so like the Nazi's the good guy or or is he the good guy, right? And it leaves you in this morally ambiguous place, but then it bemoans. Morality, right? It bemoans the lack of morality, right? The fact that they don't know what's right and wrong. That's that's the real horror is that it ends with Brad and Janet, you know, sitting there in a crater as this castle that they're in has just zapped and disappeared. And they're, they have no, they don't know what's right and wrong anymore. And it's this depressed, confused place where they don't know what to believe in. Uh, they, they've kind of lost their values, um, you know. Um, so there you go. Uh, Caleb, don't scare people, please. I am your follower. We are not too bad because government signed up with terrorist group. Well, I don't even know what that means, Syed. I don't even know what you're talking about. But there you go. That's my take on the Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's, you know, that's, that's my take on it. I see it as a profoundly conservative work of art uh, that people appreciated for the opposite of what the actual text of it says. So based on that, uh, let's do the roll call, names and locations, names and locations, who's with us, names and locations. I will call you out as I see you, then we'll answer your questions, and then uh, then we'll be done for now, and then I'll be back later tonight, probably around 11, I'll be back on. So right as I opened to do the roll call, right as I started doing the roll call, 
Um, I, at that point, got interrupted. Um, that was when we got interrupted. It was right when I was planning to do the roll call. So, um, yeah, that's how this works sometimes. Um, whatever. So, tell you what, since we're waiting for everyone to pile back in, I will start answering Super Chat questions right now. I'll start answering Super Chat questions, and we'll do the roll call um, after enough folks have come back in. Don't know why. That's very a very annoying time for the interruption to happen. We got interrupted. Um, that's just how this works sometimes. So we're just going to keep going. We're going to keep going, um, uh, and uh, you know, and uh, we're just going to keep going. And uh, I'll I'll start answering super chats now. I'm going to do the first four super chats, and then I will do the roll call again, and then I'll keep answering super chats until we're done. All right. So. Why is Superman a journalist is the question. I think that the probably the main, I, I would assume, this is my guess. I obviously don't know, um, I don't know in great depth uh, why the authors of Superman uh, chose for him to be a journalist. But my speculation is that it was a way that Superman could be in places where action was happening, uh, you know, a journalist is always where the story is, right? A journalist is, you know, especially back then, there was no phones or anything like that, right? The journalist always has to be where the action is. And so a way that Superman could be where the action is uh, is that he's a mild-mannered reporter who's there just to report on the events, but then he's, you know, he's also a superhero, right? Um, and I think there's also in that probably commentary on the fact that one thing they talk about journalists is journalists are not supposed to be the news, right? Journalists, you know, okay, why well, use title of leftist, all right? Journalists aren't supposed to be the news. Um, they're not supposed to be the news. Journalists are just supposed to report the news. Um, but Superman obviously is the news, right? Superman is intervening in the stories, right? Superman is rushing into the phone booth and changing into a costume and saving the day. So it's kind of commenting on the fact that while, you know, one of the rules of journalism is you're not supposed to intervene at all. You're just supposed to report on what happens. Your job is to just document what happened. Maybe if you're doing op-ed kind of stuff, analyze what's happening, but you're not supposed to intervene at all. But yet Superman himself clearly intervened in, in the stories. And so it's like in order to intervene, he had to be somebody else, right? Um, and it's probably, you know, and at the end of the day, the press does intervene. The press, by existing, intervenes. And that's the ironic thing. As much as the press is not supposed to intervene, it's just supposed to report things and let events happen and document and, and document reality, often, often the way the press chooses to cover things has a very big impact. I mean, there's many examples of that during elections, you know, during, you know, the way the press, what the press chooses to emphasize and not emphasize has a very big impact, even though the press is, in theory, not supposed to not supposed to be thinking about its impact. It's just supposed to be doing its job. So I think that that's there's an element of reporting on of commenting on that. Having Superman be a mild mannered reporter who's never supposed to intervene, uh, and then he turns into a character who constantly intervenes. Right? Um, it's it's pointing to the irony of that. And right, that he's mild mannered reporter. Right? That Clark Kent is a very easygoing, almost nerdy kind of guy. Whereas uh, Superman is, you know, super strong and and is always going in to save the day, and it, it's like it's supposed to point to the fact that uh, that the character of Superman has two sides. Superman has two sides. We all have a shy side, a bashful side, and you know, we also all have a, a, a an exciting, outgoing, heroic side, right? And that 
that you know Superman in a way points to the fact that all of us have have multiple aspects of our identity, right? Um, I think that's that's what it's getting at. That Superman's uh, Superman's character is pointing to the dual nature of human beings and of personalities. People's personalities change, right? People have different personalities. All right. Um, uh, will I be covering the Virginia governor's uh, election? I wasn't planning on covering it. I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not, I, I'm, I haven't followed that. I couldn't tell you who's running right now. Um, but, you know, it might be worth looking into. And I thank you, Max, for asking about that. Maybe I should look into it. Um, how was Henry Wallace pushed out? Well, the Democratic Party machine didn't want Henry Wallace to be the vice president any longer. As World War II was ending, uh, Truman, you know, Truman was pushed onto the Democratic ticket to replace uh, Henry Wallace. And I think that was largely because of Henry Wallace's pro-Soviet positions, his anti-war positions, et cetera. You know, Harry Truman uh, had risen to power kind of criticizing the New Deal, investigating uh, misuse of government funds, and that Harry Truman was seen as from the right wing of the Democratic Party, whereas uh, Henry Wallace, you know, was a secretary of agriculture, had had called himself a socialist, uh, was friendly with Socialist Party members. Henry Wallace was from the left wing of the Democratic Party. And when Henry Wallace became you know, vice president. That was a that was a nod. That was a nod to the Communist Party. Uh, that was a nod to the Socialist Party. That was a nod to the Soviet Union. That was part of the the World War II alliance. In order to win World War II, you know, they had to have the working class lined up behind Roosevelt. And so, in order to make clear to the working class and the Communist Party and the labor movement uh, that they were part of that they they were an essential part of the coalition, they had to throw them a bone. And part of that was Henry Wallace. They threw them a bone. But then as the war was ending, as it got time for the Cold War to continue uh, to get going, uh, Truman, and that's one thing where there's some people who speculate that Roosevelt has was assassinated. I have no reason, I've never found any evidence of that. Um, but one thing that always kind of stands out is when people say someone dies at like the perfect time, the perfect time, you know, and when, when people die at just the right moment, that's when there's, there's, there should be a part of your brain that goes, wait a second, right? Um, you know, and the fact that Roosevelt died just as the Second World War was ending, just as the Cold War was about to begin, he died at just the right time, right? When, when there was no way, I mean, they needed somebody to be on board with the Cold War, and Roosevelt was not going to be on board with the Cold War. He didn't want a Cold War. He liked Stalin. Uh, you know, he didn't like Churchill. And, you know, the fact that he died right at that moment, at that pivotal moment when he died, that should set off some alarm bells. Um, you know, and there's other examples. I mean, the fact that Shokwe Lumumba, right, was, you know, a, a Marxist, uh, Marxist black nationalist was elected uh, as the president of, um, you know, of, of or I'm sorry, as elected as the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, and then like right Right as at the moment, right at the very, very, very moment that uh, that he um, he got, you know, he got to be mayor, he died. And it's like, again, it's like he, he could have started to change things, but then he died. Right now, I obviously have no evidence that he was murdered or assassinated. And so I, I, I don't want to. But when, when there's a situation where someone dies at, at just the precise moment, that's when you have to go. You know, is it possible something could have happened? So there you go. Um, uh, why did the new left embrace hedonism? Well, I talk about this in my Kamala, my book on Kamala Harris. I talk about this a great deal. Um, I, I talk about this a great deal in my book on Kamala Harris. And 
the reason I talk about this um, is because of the fact that um, that uh, that in order to overturn feudalism, the revolutionary bourgeoisie discovered that giving people permission to unleash their impulses uh, was a very effective tactic. That the peasant was totally controlled, uh, was you know the the, the capitalist uh, you know tightly controlled the peasantry, didn't give them their freedom. Um, and so because of that, um, because of that, uh, there was a lot of resentment. And when the bourgeoisie came along and said to the peasant, uh, hey, you can now unleash your sexual desires. You can now unleash the rage you have against the nobility. That created a social explosion. And the French Revolution was largely a, an explosion of sex and violence because the peasantry had had their sexuality tightly restrained, number one. And on top of that, they had boiling rage at the daily humiliations that the, uh, the, the owning class or the, the aristocracy had against them. And, you know, uh, and so the, the bourgeoisie, in order to topple feudalism, said, oh, now, you know, sexual desires are unleashed, number one. And number two, your rage and your anger, we're going to have, you know, public beheadings where we're just going to chop people's heads off and we're going to storm the Bastille. And it was an explosion of, of pent-up sexual frustration and pent-up anger. And it was very effective. Um, and, you know, a lot of revolutions have an aspect like this, right? Uh, you know, the Cuban Revolution. You know, after the Cuban Revolution, there were a lot of executions. You know, they had those trials uh, in sports stadiums of figures from the Batista regime. And, that, you know, I mean, at one point, one of those, uh, one of the people on trial said something like, I am in the Roman Colosseum, right? Well, that was, you know, the people of Cuba had suffered humiliation and degradation at the hand of Batista. And so, you know, they put on some show trials and, and there were a lot of executions, right? And that was, again, it was like that. And the Cultural Revolution in China, it was teenagers largely, right? In traditional Chinese society, you're taught to, you know, I mean, there's a real emphasis on obedience to teachers and obedience to parents. And Mao Zedong, in order to, you know, in order to uh, basically beat back a faction in the Chinese Communist Party that he didn't like, he tapped into the resentment of teenagers against their teachers and against their parents and created kind of an explosion of that. And that this is this is a political tactic uh, that uh, that leftist forces have used for a long time as they have tapped into uh, what you might call the Oedipal desires, the, the Oedipal feelings of, of the youth, right? They want to they want to rebel against their parents. They want to lift the restraints on their sexual desires. They want to they want permission to be angry. They want to be they want to be have their rage validated. They want to get permission to act out their rage. And sometimes that's needed, okay? Sometimes that is absolutely needed. But that in and of itself is not revolutionary. And that simply left to its own devices leads to just nothing but destruction. That, at the, you know, at the same time, at the same time, uh, what has made socialist countries strong is not that. Um, what has made socialist countries strong is the opposite. If you look at what made the Soviet Union widely loved, it wasn't that they tore down stuff, it was they built things. It was that Stalin mobilized the five-year economic plans to industrialize the country and wipe out illiteracy and, you know, electrify and build huge electrical power plants like the Dnieper Dam. And, and it was bringing people together, not separating them, but bringing people together to work in a group. That was the strength of the Chinese Com, or of the Soviet Communist Party and of the Chinese Communist Party. If you look at what, why Cuba is loved, um, no handouts. I, uh, you know, if you look at why why Cuba is loved, uh, you know, Cuba is loved 
um, because of the fact that they have mobilized the population to work together to achieve common goals. Um, so there's a confusion, I think, um, you know, that ultimately the strength of socialism is not giving people permission to unleash their rage and tear things down, but the opposite. The strength of socialism is giving people permission, you know, to be part of a group and to get, get people to work together. Um, and that, that those feelings that were part of the French Revolution and part of the, you know, various leftist movements have unleashed, uh, you know, people's desire to, you know, lift their restraints. At the same time, um, at the same time, now the imperialists use that. The color revolution industry, right, and really the, the late Cold War, right, Brzezinski and, and the color revolutions and Soros, has basically got to a point that, that that no longer belongs to the left. What the left used to do, giving people permission to unleash their impulses, has now been almost completely taken over by the right wing uh, and by imperialism. Imperialism, uh, you know, imperialism at this point uh, is the uh, is the force that, that goes around the world giving people permission to revolt and tear things down and unleash their impulses. So that has kind of lost any revolutionary edge that it has. Um, you know, and, and now working people feel they see all this instability all around them. And that's what the imperialists need to stay in power. They need instability. Whereas now in this age, city building and unifying people, bringing them together and getting them to work in coordination, getting them to care about other people and have real connections to other people is the most revolutionary thing you can do. And that socialism you know, the aesthetics have changed, that imperialism is now going around uh, telling people to unleash their impulses and giving people permission to be full of rage and giving people permission to be, uh, you know, destructive. Uh, whereas now socialism, all that socialism really has left is the city building. That's all socialism has. Um, and so that's kind of, that's what I argue in my book, City Builders and Vandals in Our Age. That's what I argue in the Kamala Harris book. This is one of my central theses that, uh, that basically the, the, what you might call hedonism or whatever, all of that has basically, the political nature of that has changed. It no longer serves a revolutionary purpose uh, and the imperialists have hijacked it to use it for their own ends. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not for LGBT rights. I'm for LGBT rights. People have the right to be who they are. I don't want to control anyone's sexuality. I don't want to regulate anyone's morality. Um, you know, I don't even think drug use should be illegal. I think drugs should be decriminalized. You know, I'm not trying to police people's morality, but I'm just saying that that act in and of itself, going around telling people, you have permission to do what you feel like doing. You have permission to be full of rage and be angry. That no longer has a revolutionary edge to it. That's my point. That is my point. All right. All right. Now, after, now we can do the roll call now. Now we can do the roll call after we got so rudely interrupted by the algorithm or whatever. So let's do a roll call, names and locations. Keep the super chats rolling in. I'll answer the rest of your super chats and then I'm done, but then I'll be live later tonight at 11. We're doing two a day now, two a day. All right. Finn in Duluth, Arturo, uh, Arturo Awesome, uh, Corona, California, Nassau County, Char Char Darling, Good friend of the program. Hello, everyone. Zachary B. in Richmond, Virginia. Trans Marxist, Ontario, Canada. Ben in Suffolk County. Micah in Las Vegas. Bob in Troy. Ash in Chicago. Giannis from Greece, Norway. Dario from Brooklyn. Quezon City, Los Angeles County. Jeff in Nicaragua. Calgary. Arturo from Alaska. Sweden. Bermuda, North Dakota. JT24 in Mississippi. Carolyn in Staten Island. Quinn and Meredith. 
Anderson, uh, Carter in Duluth, Sam in Australia, Michigan, Auckland, New Zealand, Richmond, Virginia, Jeff in Halliburton, Canada, Lagos, Nigeria, Maine, USA, Paris, France, Jenny Lynn in Cincinnati, Ohio, JR in Kalamazoo, uh, Niall Frazier in Hong Kong, China, Omar in Toronto, John in Denver, Jacob in London, Dorian in Highland Park, Los Angeles, Happy Valley, Oregon, Naples, Florida, Mosin from Iran, Memphis, Tennessee, Rees from Australia, Max the Sax in Arlington, Virginia. Shout out to you, uh, Joe Gale in Nassau County, enjoying this live before my swing shift. Very good. Very, 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 very good. Very, very, very good. Anybody else? Anybody else? Is there another Richmond comrade in the chat? Julian in the UK. Caleb, could you, oh, there you go. That's very sweet of you, Harold. I appreciate it. Shout out to you, Harold. All right. Keep the super chats rolling in, folks. If there's any more super chats, I will answer them now, and then I will end this stream and we'll go live late tonight. Um, so the next super chat, uh, why use the title of leftist? I use the title of leftist for this simple reason. The designations of left and right originated in the French Revolution. And after, after the king was toppled in France, they set up a national assembly. And the more conservative forces that supported the king sat on the right. And it was those who embraced historical progress and wanted to keep marching into the future that they sat on the left. Later, uh, as, as French society moved on, um, they then uh, moved on and then they declared the people sitting on the left referred to themselves as the innovators. And I have formed a center for political innovation, right? Political innovation means doing things that haven't been done before, trying new things, right? Innovation, right? And I associate myself with innovation. I associate myself with historical progress, with marching into the future. And so I am a revolutionary and I'm not going to hand over the title of being left to the synthetic left because the synthetic left does not believe in historical progress at this point. Right? Monthly caravan to end the blockade of Cuba. You're welcome to join us. Wow. I thank you for that invitation. I would love to join that. I got a lot going on. We're headed to Nicaragua pretty soon, but you know, end the blockade of Cuba. Absolutely. It needs to end. Um, you know, absolutely needs to end. Uh, you know, and and hands off Cuba. And they're, you know, the US government's planning on November 15th to stage a bunch of provocations trying to overthrow the government. But, uh, you know, I, I don't want to hand over the title of leftism to the synthetic left because they don't believe in historical progress. They actually want to destroy things. They want some big, big orgasmic explosion that'll, you know, you know, destroy civilization and bring us back into balance with Mother Nature. Um, that's what they want. Uh, you know, they are the most profoundly right wing, uh, the synthetic left, right? They are against historical progress, whereas historical progress is essential, essential to my view, and it's essential to what it means to be a leftist. The same for the word revolution. The word revolution, uh, it originated because there were some people, scientists, who were smart enough to realize that the earth was not the center of the universe, that the center of the universe was not the earth. They argued the earth revolved. So they were revolutionaries because they believed the earth was revolving. Um, that's what a revolutionary was. And, and as you may be aware, um, you know, the revolutionaries were those who believed in science and stood up for the truth in a world of lies. So I'm not going to hand what it means to be a revolutionary over to the synthetic left. They think revolution just means chaos and destruction. That is not what the word means. You know, insurrection 
is not the same as revolution. Punch is not the same as revolution. Riot is not the same as revolution. Revolution is the application of science. It is sticking up for truth and applying science to human history and human, human understanding. So I am a revolutionary and I am a leftist. The synthetic left that is trying to tear things down, that is trying to engage in destruction, that wants to end civilization, that is against the notion of historical progress, the synthetic left are not revolutionaries. Um, Operation Paperclip. Um, so there you go. All right. Why do they call China no handout socialism? I haven't heard this, but I would assume it's because, all right. So in the United States, nobody knows what socialism actually means. Um, I think a lot of people think socialism is when the government gives people free stuff, right? And that's DSA has done a lot to perpetuate that illusion. Socialism is when the government gives people a bunch of free stuff. Right? If people are getting free stuff, that's socialism. If people are not getting free stuff, that's capitalism. Well, that's not what it is. But in China, you know, I mean, they do, they've done a lot, built roads. You know, the government works very, very hard to control the economy, but they don't, they don't do a lot of giving people free stuff in China. You know, I mean, they, they do more of it than you would think. I mean, they work to make sure that healthcare is available to the population. You may have to pay when you receive it, but they make sure it's accessible, which is a huge deal in a country that has had so many millions of people in poverty until recently. Um, you know, uh, I mean, they don't, they're, the government in China isn't cutting everyone a check and just giving them a stipend, like a universal basic income. So for Americans who think that socialism is the government giving people free stuff, they probably look at China and say, they're not giving people free stuff, but yet they call it socialism. Well, socialism is not the government giving people free stuff. That is not what socialism is. Socialism is when the banks, factories, and industries and the major centers of economic power are forced to work in the interests of society overall, not the profits of a few. Socialism is an economy that serves the people, not profits. If profits are in command, that's capitalism. If the means of production are forced to serve the people and profits are no longer in command, if the anarchy of production and the chaos of the market has been abolished, that's socialism. And uh, so that's the difference. That is the difference. Uh, socialism is a planned economy. It is, as Frederick Engels puts it in Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, production upon a predetermined plan becomes henceforth possible. Right? Socialism is when society, the working class as the representative of society overall takes control of the means of production. Like that's what socialism is. Um, and so China, socialism is not the government giving people free stuff. That often happens in socialist countries. It happens in capitalist countries too. Norway is capitalist, but they still give people free stuff. Sweden's capitalist, they still give people free stuff. Britain is very, very capitalist, but they still have a national health service. Right, so I think that's the confusion there. The next super chat, and this is the last one I've got, so if anyone's got another super chat, now is the time to send it to me, because if not, I'm gonna be wrapping this up because I got a whole nother stream to do tonight. Um, uh, Operation Paperclip, uh, that was after World War II, uh, the US uh, intelligence apparatus started trying to, and, and actively recruiting former Nazis. Uh, there was the Galen organization, which was the Nazi intelligence agency. It was like the Nazi spy ring. Uh, they were recruited. They started recruiting former Nazis. Former Nazi scientists were flown to the United States to be part of our space program. Uh, former Nazi intelligence people were recruited. Former Nazi military people were recruited, and that a lot of uh, you know a lot of the Nazis uh, were recruited basically to become. 
uh, to become, uh, you know, operatives for the, the United States. Um, and that happened, right? And if you watch, there's, a, uh, you know, there's there's a lot about this, but like, if you watch, there's a, a, a like, it was an HBO movie, I think they did called Nuremberg. And it was about the Nuremberg trials. And at one point, you know, I think it was Gehring, uh, he made, made friends with one of the guards uh, who guarded him in the prison during the Nuremberg trial. And he makes friends with this guard. He calls him Tex because he's from Texas. And he says, Tex, Tex, we should be allies against communism. The guy agrees. Yeah, we should vote. You know, I mean, that was the attitude. After World War II, there was a feeling on the part of the United States that communism was the main danger. So the USA, you know, Franco in Spain had been sympathetic to the Nazis. He'd been officially neutral during World War II. But the USA got to be good friends with Franco, the Greek monarchy. Um, There were many, many forces. The Shah of Iran, the USA put the Shah of Iran, who'd been overthrown by the Soviets and the British for being a Nazi collaborator during the Second World War, they put him back on the throne. Um, The USA in a coup in 1953, they put the Shah of Iran back on the throne, right? And the United States started started embracing all these pro-Nazi people uh, because they thought the main enemy was communism. Um, and that was, um, that was what happened after the Second World War. Operation Paperclip was a big part of it. So there you go. Uh, there you go. All right, folks. Um, I guess that's our first live stream. That is our first live stream for today. But I'm going to be back late tonight. We're going to do a whole other live stream. It'll be more focused on news and events. Um, and I'm going to try to do two today, two tomorrow, two the next day. So this is live stream number one for today. Uh, and live stream number two will be late tonight. So uh, we'll end this stream the way we end all our streams. A new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression, but the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. Good night. I'll be back tonight.